You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Simon. <laughs> did everybody say that differently for a reason then? Because you was just did. copying Lee. <laughs> and Lee was copying me. Because I said it slightly differently at the start. Was there a reason why I said it differently at the start? I've no idea, but by the end I Is was saying like Ted Rogers. World War Dead? No, it's not got anything to do with World War Dead. It is entirely to do with the fact that last time I could not leave you three idiots alone to get yourselves in the right alphabetical <laughs> order. Hey, look, that wasn't our fault. Well, it was Simon's fault. Oh, that's what? true. That it was. was. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Sorry, it usually Simon. is. Simon nicked your spot. And when I say that, admit it. and when I say that he nicked your spot, I am not speaking euphemistically. <laughs> I didn't nick his spot, I more tweaked it. Why did You're you just mention... keeping my seat warm, aren't you, Simon? Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, keep them coming. That's what she said. <laughs> Off to a great start. Okay, speaking of which, uh, here we go. Dear Blue Boxers, I just listened to your last podcast. It was nice, even though there was not much about Doctor Who again. It sounds like Lee has stopped <laughs> slapping his bollocks, which is probably for the best, as when I tried it, it hurt me quite a bit. But that was because Lee hit me. Maybe I should have tried slapping my own bollocks, not Lee's. I liked it when you were all laughing when Simon said his favourite film was Blade Runner because it used the word fanny. It is my favourite word too. But my favourite film is Piranha DD, which has a lot of fanny in it. JR told a story about when he watched a film, he laughed his bollocks off. I was very sorry to hear that. <laughs> it might explain why he talks such a lot. You can tell that Lee still has his, as he didn't say anything until you read my last letter. <laughs> I was disappointed that you didn't like... that. I was disappointed that you didn't talk about the Omen film, even though I didn't know that they had made a film about them. I bet if they had that silly Vesta McCoy would have come back to star alongside David Rappapapapaport. Do you remember Vision On? They never returned people's pictures, although they did return mine along with a letter asking me to never send that kind of thing to them ever again and Pat was to restraining order on me. I, I once saw a film called Cube. I was surprised that it wasn't made by Kubrick. I still bought one, though. It had pictures of ladies on each of the squares. I enjoyed that, but it hurt my wrist after a while. I wished you had talked about Barbarella, which I thought was a very good film. Jane Fonda was really easy in that one, which made me happy. You also didn't... <laughs> you also didn't talk about Barber Papa, which I was glad about, as that was a bit weird. Can you do... Can you do a podcast about the Confessions of a series of films, as I liked those very much? 
I am looking forward to your next podcast and talking about Doctor Who again. Hopefully, you will talk about Leela soon. I like Leela. She did things to me inside my head and my pants. Your friend, Sharaz Jizz. Sharak Jizz. I miss the days when we used to get emails from Sucky Kark and people of that ilk. Yes, I miss Sucky yeah. Kark. Where is yeah. Sucky Kark? Sucky, if you're listening, we love you. And email, Sucky. Yeah. Come back, come back. If it's been so long, it's been so long since we heard from Sookie Kark. He's Where... a very busy man, JR. He yeah, works but for Royal Mail, and uh, as you all know, they are taskmasters. If you'd let me finish my sentence, Mark. <laughs> so, it's nice to be on that end of things, isn't it? Turn the it's... table, carry on. It's been so Maybe... long since we've had an email from Sookie Kark that if we did get one, we could pretend we weren't sure if it was a man or a woman again. <laughs> yeah, that's another one of my mistakes, isn't it? Come on. Was it you that made that mistake? I can't it remember. Was I thought it was Simon, me. yes. Yeah. I oh, thought it was it? my wife's job to remember my mistakes, but obviously not. <laughs> no, it's JR's. Well, <clears throat> what are you saying? Maybe, maybe Sucky got fed up with uh, hearing us all agree with each other. Ooh, oh, yeah. good point. No, Sucky's still around. Yeah, I, st- I still see him turning up on Facebook every now and again. He does. He does like some comments every now and again. Yeah, yes, exactly. Um, Mark, very early on, you mentioned World War Dead. Why did you do that? Uh, it just sprang to mind for some reason. Uh, is there any particular reason it sprang to mind? Lee. Because you're about to review it. That's right. I, and This is one of those utterly, utterly insane occasions when I'm more likely to get a straight answer out of Lee than anybody else. (laughs) Was it better than Drop Dead Fred? (laughs) (laughs) It just doesn't happen like that. Yes, World War Dead, the uh, review just turned up this morning, so I've watched that over the weekend, and I'll be reviewing it for the magazine, obviously, and we'll probably talk about it on the next podcast. But since we're here on this podcast, has anybody seen any good films lately? Yes. Oh, go on then, Simon. Tell me what good film you saw. I went to see Big Hero 6. Well, thank you, Simon. Right, the subject of tonight's show... (laughs) (laughs) Go on, Simon. Tell me more about Big Hero 6. Everyone's read God knows how many reviews of it. I I thought it was very good. I don't... What is it? I haven't the faintest idea what it is. It's a Marvel thing, isn't it, is it, is it? See, you've given away what I was going to bring up towards the end because I oh, watched it without it. knowing it was a. I didn't know it was a Marvel property. And you call somehow a that had gone. Pu- Even I knew that. Well, yeah. Did you? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, yeah. You're one of these one of these new Marvel fans. <laughs> does it not? Does it not have that big animated beginning with their skin walking across behind the comics? <laughs> <laughs> no. Do you know what? There's no clue at all. I don't. Th- I don't think the Marvel logo comes at the front, if I if I remember rightly. Thing is, it is so detached from the comic original that the original is very uh, kind of mm, comic sort of. Uh, well, yeah, kind of Robotech esque. Robotech esque. Japanese ro- Yes, there's a word. Uh, it's got the big robot and all that sort of thing, and yeah it just looks very different whereas this is has more in common with like bolt and that sort of disney thing so very cartoonified is this a cartoon but, um, it's a cartoon cgi yes okay maybe you should so have said that up front 
Uh, I just assume people know because they, they've seen the adverts. I haven't even seen any adverts for it. Oh, have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, it's, so it's, give us a small... Good. Yeah, you keep saying how good it is. Give us a little pricey of the plot. Okay. Or just um, give us the premise. The premise is that a young boy, Hero, um, has an older brother who is an inventor. The young boy is a bit of an inventor as well. His older brother invents a robot, which is uh, almost like a health robot to look after people. His brother uh, dies under strange circumstances, which obviously cre- creates... Yes. I thought this was a Disney and, uh, film. It is a Disney it is, film. It is. It is. So, I mean, he's left with the robot, and then he decides to turn the robot into a into a superhero. And in turn, a lot of his friends into a superhero, and they they become a superhero team. And uh, obviously, he spends the rest of the film investigating who killed his brother. So that's the start of the film. Oh, my God. That doesn't sound... Sounds depressing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't yeah, it's, it's very inventive. It's good. No. I've been watching Wolf Hall. That's really good. Go on. Uh, go on. I don't. I, I know nothing Mantel. about it. Go on. What's the premise? Of Wolf Hall? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, go, go uh, for it, It's mate. all about the court of Henry VIII and uh, Thomas Cromwell's part in it. Oh, it's not a fantasy thing. No, no. Oh. Well, it's... I don't know how much of it is is down to dramatic interpretation and how much of it is down to the facts, but um, it makes for really interesting telly. Well, See, Hillary what would... Hel- that kind of thing. What would Hilary Mantel uh, wrote three books, I think. That's right. Um, and um, she was there on set, and there was a big... Not on set, but she saw the, the, the finished article, rather, and she nodded with approval, because obviously it's very historically heavy um mm. whether or not that she's actually done masses of research i'm sure she has she's but got thomas aquinas flying around in a pair of wings that's not <laughs> historically accurate <laughs> yeah isn't it oh okay anyway yeah. she's like lo- she's local budley salterton stand away oh, oh really oh we should go and ask her maybe we get her on the podcast <laughs> she'd make more sense than you mark guys Rylance is brilliant isn't it? he plays cromwell and he is amazing <laughs> is mark not actually <laughs> listening to the rest of us He just carried on where he left off. (laughs) (laughs) All right, fair enough. Uh, Lee, you must have a recommendation. Uh, I've I've rewatched some films with my son, so um, first time for him and and a couple of times for me. District Nine, we watched, um, which is an absolute corker of a film. I absolutely ahead of Chappie. Then it's very (laughs) yeah, it's very very. it's very simple plot, really. You know, there are aliens that are already living in a township in, in South Africa. There's a bit of racial tension going on. It's all a, a giant metaphor. But, um, you know, uh, one of the civil servants pops in, ends up getting infected and um, has has to go through a strange metamorphosis uh, body horror thing. Uh, Gets infected whole... by alien. Get... Yeah, mm. I can't. I don't want to give too much away if you haven't seen it, because it's just a really it's a really good Film. It's just a really good line. film. Yeah, well, I think the CGI in it is faultless. You, it looks real. The whole everything in it looks real, and it's dusty and it's a shanty town. Mm. Um, it's great. It's a really good film. Really, really highly recommend it. I can't remember the director. Is it a Barn Kumpf or something? I can't remember. Now. But he did Elysium as well. Neil That's Blomkamp. it. Thank you. Uh, definitely worth watching if you've never seen it. I never have. And I always, it's one of those films that I always pass on the DVD shelves and think, oh, I could do with watching that. But then mm. I'd never 
persuade anybody else in the house to watch it. So, well, it's a, it's a bit of fun, but I mean, you do get. I mean, the ending is, you know, it's quite downbeat. Really, it's quite a downbeat f- film, and it looks low budget, but it isn't. It's got a good budget as well. It's, it's strange. It's a kind of interesting mix. Um, great, great debut. I've had some very sad news this week. You were laughing when you said that. I wasn't laughing when I said that. I've had some very sad news this week. Go on. Go on, then. Don't keep us in suspense. Despicable Lee has died. Oh, dear. Thank God. What do you mean, thank God? I may resurrect him. I may resurrect him by unscrewing the back and putting a new watch battery in. Is that all it is? It died of ba- is the, its battery's dead. Yeah, dead. How you just you said the to... word "dead." You said the word in that sentence. Uh, you're trying to eke pathos out of <laughs> out of the listeners. From I think "drained" I want... is a more appropriate word. I want sympathy. You ain't getting no sympathy. Get on with the podcast. Okay, we what were gonna. Saying? We were. Oh, I watched a film this week. It was called Enemy. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal. <clears throat> Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. As two different fellas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's only about an hour and 25 minutes long. It's very, very, very slow. And the entire film takes place. <laughs> That's going to be the strap line on the poster. It's very slow. No, it's out. <laughs> yeah, so I don't it's, think. It's, it's very slow. Thank goodness it's only an hour and 25 minutes long. Yeah. There's only, I counted, there are 37 lines of dialogue in the film. Wow, that sounds really good. You must have been bored off your unmentionables. Well, I've got to tell you, when I said I counted, (laughs) that's not what I was counting, so I was making that up, and I didn't count as far as 37. (laughs) I only counted as far as five, so obviously I just made the entire thing up. But it is very slow, and there's not much going on. But but there's a reason... Well, it's one of those, it looks lovely, and if you surrender to the premise and you go with it, then probably the slowness is like a positive thing, and the lack of much Mm. dialogue and much explanation is probably a positive thing. But if you don't, you'll just think it's the most ridiculous thing you've ever seen, and it won't make any sense, because the entire thing takes place in the subconscious of somebody who doesn't get introduced until about a third of the way through. Christ on a bike. Crumbs. <laughs> yeah. There are people listening to this scene thinking it sounds like a Stephen Moffat script. Probably. <laughs> it's, it's, um, it reminded me, do you remember the film called Birth with Nicole Kidman in it? No. God, that sounds awful on both accounts. <laughs> Title yeah. and star. Well, no, it was, was that directed. Was sequel to Eyes Wide Shut? No, it was directed by. <laughs> was it Jamie Thraves? No, it was somebody who used to direct Radiohead de- uh, videos back in the days of the Bends and that. <clears throat> oh, wow. oh, blimey! I should know. And it was. Know. I think it was his feature debut or his second film, and it was kind of mm. this weird, slightly surreal, but very slow and very sort of slightly maudlin or even morbid maybe film nicole kidman's husband dies but he gets reincarnated into the body of a 10 year old so she doesn't know whether she should fall in love with a 10 year old or not yeah all kind of weird enemy was well not quite like that but it was it was edging in that direction shall we say so if that sounds Mm. like your kind of thing you are probably love this film because it is very nicely made 
But if that doesn't sound like your kind of thing, I would avoid it like the plague. Sounds like the sort of thing Sharak Jizz might like. Oh, speaking of Sharak Jizz, there were two other emails on that uh, sheet. So here's he Dil- just had one note, isn't he? Sharak Jizz. Yeah. yeah, and I've got to tell you, he actually his email, he actually wrote a PS, but uh, it was beyond even <laughs> our pale. Oh, so yeah. I've left that one on the cutting room floor. <laughs> Dylan Deadline Reese, on the other hand, says, Dear Blue Box Boys, can I call you that or is it copyrighted by Matthew Waterhouse? I feel I must write to protest on the direction of your recent podcast. There I was, but two Saturdays ago, dressed in my David Tennant pyjamas, mug of cocoa in hand, all tucked up in bed, ready to listen to my favourite Doctor Who podcast. And what happens? They go and talk about something that isn't Doctor Who. I thought you were going to say he's going to listen to Radio Free Scaro. <laughs> Mark, are you just going to be doing the unfunny jokes all night? Well, I thought I'd give you a I rest. I that quite amusing. Okay. Anyway, Dylan Deadline Reese carries on and says, quick. What, what on earth makes you think I or other Doctor Who fans would have other interests besides Doctor Who? <laughs> How would you feel? <laughs> How would you feel if you went to watch a cricket match and they started playing rounders? Upset, confused and angry, I imagine. I like my Doctor Who podcast like I like my Doctor Who. Predictable, run-of-the-mill, and starring Peter Cushing. Okay, maybe I enjoyed your podcast a little bit, but don't tell anyone. If you do more of these, I'd love to hear you cover some other sci-fi TV shows, such as Red Dwarf, The Prisoner, and that one with the bald guy from the X-Men in. Keep up the good work, Dylan. <coughs> Who's the bald guy? I've seen the... Patrick Stewart, yeah? Yeah, I was just kidding, really. Oh, I was going to say, I'd love to see the uh, Black Orchid uh, with rounders in it. (laughs) The reason I was kidding was because that was a Star Trek reference, wasn't it? It was, yeah. It's never going to happen. Not with you at the helm, is it? Well, there's a question. What would our listeners think if there was a Blue Box podcast that didn't have me on it at all? Make it so. (laughs) <laughs> oh, and you said Mark was quick. <laughs> the only way we could do a Star Trek podcast would be if I wasn't on it at all. Mm. Well, on account of the fact that yeah, I know you what, Why is that? Would you not? Would you not join in with the conversation and uh, give you? Well, you, you're just not prepared to watch it. Is that the problem? I wouldn't have the time to watch it. I. I would have been prepared to watch it if I was single and I could just sort of sit down for a day and dip into Star Trek, but that just ain't going to happen. Would I be prepared mm. to join in with the conversation? Yes, but I know so little about Star Trek, I think I'd only ruin the conversation. Or I would be a distraction from the conversation. So I think it would be better off if I wasn't the there. What? Conversation. From the conversation. <laughs> yeah, I trip it. I've mm. I've had a very long week, and I'm. He's been to over. Bristol recently. I think it's uh, it's rubbed off on him. That's what it is. Yeah. Oh, did you listen to that last week's podcast? Yeah, it was very good. That was so off the cuff. Literally, we because the three of us we realised we were all in Bristol, and so we said, right, let's get together and have lunch because we're all working on this book, and we'll talk about the book, and we literally went to this little cafe, sat down, had something to eat, talked about the book. And just as we were leaving, 
and we were all about to go our separate ways, I said, you know, the three of us together, something we really ought to do, isn't there? And they just looked at me. So we dashed off to Betsy Chevron's house, which wasn't far away, dug a recorder out of the car, pressed record and said, right, what are we going to talk about? And then we all just looked at each other as if to say, I don't know. <laughs> and then literally, we were, within about two minutes of that, we were doing the podcast. So there you go. The long and short of it is that uh-huh. me, Lee and Simon are sacked. Oh, God, if only. But I can't afford to go to <laughs> Bristol every week. <laughs> Sorry, we're going to start a Star Trek podcast. So. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll get Timo Peach on board. We'll be all right. The Captain's Log podcast. <laughs> uh, seriously, though, if anybody Ooh. listening to this wants to write in and say, yes, JR, take a week off and let the other three guys do a Star Trek podcast. Is this your very subtle way of trying to say you fancy a week off? No, it's my very subtle way of saying I don't think you three could survive without me, so let's put it to the test. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> Bill Jennings says, Dear Blue Boxers, I have enjoyed your podcasts for a while, but wanted to let you know that your Box Out podcasts are just as compelling as the ones focused on Doctor Who. You must also have particularly... <laughs> You must also have particularly sensitive cultural antennae and have found the films and topics that many Doctor Who fans know very well. When I think of Lee, it's often cultural and sensitive are the two words that spring to mind. And the one that springs to mind in my mind is antennae. (laughs) (laughs) And spring. In my case, says Bill... I have seen every film featured on these episodes and most of the ones referenced in the conversations, which brings me to 2001. Good discussion, but could it be the case that the huge part in the middle of the film isn't a sidetrack? It seems like a sequel and parallel to the first part. The early humans needed something to move on to take over the waterhole and advance themselves, the lack of food and imagination being key problems. But modern humans have problems too, and Kubrick seems to be saying that in 2001. They are utterly boring and need inspiration. Flying to the moon and taking naps. Flying to Jupiter and playing chess. Running in circles in a dome to fight the boredom. Boring birthday greetings to a bored crew member. For all of the technical achievement, the people in 2001 are boredom personified and desperately need something something to move on. They need a new imagination. In contrast, Hal represents a challenger. By becoming a sentient, emotional and slightly mad killer with instinctual drive, it has got to the same stage on its own. In that sense, I think it is fair to say that Hal may be the most interesting character in the story. Man versus machine to get to the new watering hole near Jupiter. And that leads to the ending where Bowman, having overcome the challengers, like another traveller, Odysseus, and transformed by the experience of the alien monolith, is returned to the Earth to liven things up in some new and needed way. Anyways, I've rambled on long enough. Thank you so much for bringing such thoughtful commentary to my ears. The Blue Box podcast enjoys a privileged headphones-only status because well-constructed criticism and <laughs> argument deserves careful attention. Best to you all, Bill Jennings. <laughs> wow. Well-constructed... Thank you, Bill. That's great. Uh, well... I'm not entirely sure where he's going at the end there, but maybe back no, to Radio no. Free Scarrow, eh, Mark? Yeah. Well, it's a shame you don't have more time to expand <laughs> your thoughts on Kubrick. I know you're a big fan of his. And if only you've been on a podcast and talked at length about Stanley Kubrick's work. 
Do you know, Mark, <clears throat> one of this one of the stories that we're going to be covering, <laughs> one of the stories that we're going to be covering in the Hating to Love book next later this year, you know, the one that Al and Betsy and I were talking mm, about. Yeah. It's Planet of Giants. Now, if you remember, there's a very famous sequence in Planet of Giants where William Hartnell, the first doctor, goes down the plug hole. Mm. Is there anything you'd like to plug right now? Well, there's a podcast uh, called Nerdology, which is particularly good. We have some great guests, um, and you three have been on it as well. And, uh, yeah, it's quite a variety of subjects covered, and I believe there is one on Stanley Kubrick. Oh, and who might be the guest on that one? Uh, J.R. Southall. Not J.R. Southall? No, not talking books, it's watching books. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad it's... tosser, then? That's a bit harsh. Very harsh. Yeah. Do you know how long have Sorry. we been talking? <laughs> Stop Way too long. This is. Do you know the Starburst Radio podcast is back now? Yes. And I've just been catching up with the last two episodes this week. We had a few technical difficulties, haven't they, on the old live broadcast? I don't know because I never get to listen to the live broadcast. Uh, but on the podcast, they just ramble on and on and on for ages without getting to the point. I think yeah. it's because I've just Sounds listened familiar. to two episodes in a row that this <laughs> yeah. has happened. Fortunately, Shall we get on then? We've... It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. Yes, and speaking of it not being about the destination but the journey, but maybe also about the destination as well, really good points by Bill's there. Yeah, very good. So, the topic Brilliant. for tonight's Brilliant. show... Oh, we were going to have a guest on tonight. But oh, sadly, yeah. he called in sick. Mm. Mm. Oh. He's not feeling very well at all. So our best wishes go out to him. And he will hopefully be on next week. And if he's still a bit ill, it may just be like a half-hour segment at the end of the podcast or something. Which, given what the topic is next week, is going to take that podcast up to the three-hour mark, isn't it? I'm not going to say who it is. People (laughs) will find out next week when they tune in, right? Is it Stephen Moffat? All right, then. Uh, It is not Stephen Moffat. But I tell you what, we may have a slight clue here. Moffat? Yeah. So, Simon, I've got a question for you. Yep. Okay. Something came out this week in PDF, and hopefully the print version won't be too far behind. What is it? What? Uh, what? Seasons of War? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I, I just wanted to get you to say it. Ah, yes. Well, Seasons of War. Yeah, because you... Beautiful thing. Yeah, well, you've had more to do with it, much more than any of the rest of us. So, because you're, what is it, creative editor? Something like that, yeah. Creative editor, creative director. I think Declan invented some name for me. Right, right. Okay, before you start bumping up names like Declan and all that (laughs) kind of thing, for anybody listening to this podcast who doesn't know what Seasons of War is, explain it. Okay. Um, If we backtrack a little bit, there was a little project that a few of us writers who talked to each other decided to do just as an experiment we put together an anthology of doctor who stories unofficially um and put it out there for free and said if you like it give some money to charity that went really well and off the back of that uh a gentleman called declan may who's been on this podcast decided let's step this ramp it up a bit and do something a bit bigger so in essence what he did was he got a load of writers together to write stories about the war doctor about what happened during the time war for that period of time that we know nothing about apart from what was in day of the doctor 
And the result of that is a book with about 30-odd stories, short stories, all based on what happened to the war doctor, which have been edited in such a way as they actually build up a chronology. So they, they tell the story of the war doctor right the way through from when he was first kind of formed right the way through to the time of day of the doctor right before we go any further we've got to point out this is not an official book not at all no but it's available as a pdf uh, as we speak so how can people get hold of it like that they can go to justgiving.com forward slash declan hyphen may one and uh if they make a donation there doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small, obviously the bigger the better, and you leave your email address, then what will happen is you will then be sent a link to download the book in PDF form. And the print version, mm. that's going to be coming out with Chinbeard books. It is, yes. I don't yeah. know a date as yet. I mean, the plan was to get it out during February. <laughs> I don't know whether that's going to happen or not. But um, I'd say We should probably doesn't... mention the, uh, the charity involved as well, shouldn't we? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Cornwall yeah. Children, which is a charity which uh, helps um, children with autism and epilepsy. So, um, yeah, yeah, it's a really... Uh... And just to say that so far the money raised uh, just uh, on the anthology downloads alone is five and a half thousand quid for the charity. Um, and of course there's the wonderful tiny kind of film that accompanies the book as well, which Simon you were also heavily involved with, weren't you? Um, well, in as much as I went to uh, a local director called Andy Robinson, I'd seen a, a couple of pieces that he'd done before, and he has he he does work to a certain standard. So when I knew that this book was coming out, I thought I know what we could do: get Andy to do a, a little short advert, like a thirty-second thing, to go onto YouTube to act, hopefully as a viral thing to get around and just to advertise the book. Um, and then he came back to me with basically the the groundwork for a five and a half minute film which is what we have and it's not um, just any old film it looks gorgeous it does and i've just looked online and it's so far it's had eighteen and a half thousand views just over houses <laughs> um and and in general 99.9 percent positive reactions to it mm. which is great so uh, the book tell me who are some of the authors in the book <laughs> oh, who have we got? Who have we got? Well, we've got a friend of the podcast, Andrew Smith, is in there. Uh, Jenny Colgan. Um, I have illustri- I spent months illustrating a comic strip, um, which was written by Jim Mortimer. Um, so you've got him writing the comic strip. When you when you get the link to the PDF, there's also a link to, um, I can't remember what that is. Is it CMZ files? Is it the ones, these viewer files for looking at comic strips, you know, when you do downloadable comics? Hmm. So there's also a comic strip that goes alongside the book, and Jim Mortimer's written that, and I've illustrated it. Um, who else in the book? Who We've got Kate we got? Orman in the book, Paul Mars is there, Gary Russell, Jenny Coolgan, who's um, basically writes Chick Lit, but she did do, I think, Dark Horizons as well, which was a Matt Smith book. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and this and JR's written one. JR, well, myself and Simon have as well. Yeah. There are loads of names in there, so many that I can't remember, in fact. Well, yeah. George Mann is one of the George important Mann. ones. Yeah, of course, yeah. Why is George Mann an important name in the book? Well, he had already written a book about the War Doctor called Engines of War. He is officially uh, the BBC yeah. War Doctor novelist, isn't he? That He's is the War the Doctor of... correspondent. Yeah, no, but the, the point is he wrote the official War Doctor book. And now, because he's written for this book as well, that is almost like a seal of approval, isn't it? 
It is really, yeah, definitely. I think um, I think the BBC have kind of said, you know, good luck with it as well, which is very good of them. Um, and you know, it's just getting better and better and better and better. And hopefully, there'll be other books in the offing in the future if this is a success. I mean, again, to stress that, it, like you say, it, it's not an official project, um, but it has been done to a standard where somebody uses the phrase headcanon, which you know essentially is if you choose in your head for it to be canon then it's canon but if you want to ignore it and you don't like the fact that people who aren't in, involved with the BBC have done it then that's fine as well and you can sort of choose to ignore it but it is of an incredibly high standard um, mm. I've only read sort of the first quarter of the book because it is absolutely massive I, I, I'm trying to think is the PDF something like over something 400, like four, pages. 400 pages 400 pages I think it's uh, 40 stories actually thereabouts that's quite a few it's, it's it's something else, and I've just read the first few few stories, and mm. um, they do actually link in with each other. So there is a, a constant, um, you know, a narrative all the way through, running through the War Doctor's life, um, which which is you know, uh, not only has Declan edited this and you know corrected everyone's spellings and and he <laughs> made sure that they can speak English properly, um, he's actually put things in a sequence so that they make sense. So that's quite an achievement. Yeah, but also me. on top of that, I mean, obviously we've got a lot of big names there, but there are whole loads of a whole lot of um, kind of authors that are new that have never rep, uh, written before. Alan P. Jack is a good friend of ours. He's never written a, a, a word, um, and you know he pitched an idea and it was a good enough idea, and Declan's helped him along. And that's a great thing about the whole project that's it's helping to springboard new authors out as well. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a, an amazing process for me. To, to have written this, being one of the early stories in the book. It's and quite a frightening concept. Nobody has taken a penny. Every, every Any money that has come towards the project has gone straight to the charity through exactly. the Just Giving website. Yeah. So, um, yes. Yes, I mean, it's a wholly positive... Every angle of this is a positive thing. So It it's is. Just, it shows how generous people can be, not just the uh, people donating, but also the people who have given their time to, to yeah. contribute. Yeah, and JR, your story is a bit of a mind bender, isn't it? I enjoyed that. Well, you went all funny on the Skype feed there, Lee. So I've no idea what you said. So <laughs> I'll just say, so I'll take it as a compliment, JR. <laughs> so I'll, I'll just, I'll just imagine in my head that you said my story was brilliant, and leave it at that. <laughs> I think that is what you said, JR. Oh, is it? Oh, well, fantastic! Yeah. That's yeah. well, thank you, Lee. That means so much to me. <laughs> That's all right. I was just going to say, I've not read a word of it yet because I'm waiting for the print copy. Mm. So, uh, recommend me some of the stories, maybe. Oh, I oh loved my Andrew God. Smith's story. It was brilliant. Andrew, yeah, Andrew Smith's story is a, a whole episode of a Doctor Who story <laughs> from start to finish. It's got a great opening. You can imagine the... Um, you know the, the, the kind of the opening credits and then the the scene and that's oh, just great. The whole thing is fantastic. But and he introduces a whole new kind of race and characters mm -hmm. and it's great. But every single one so far that I've read because I've read probably about 150 pages in, how they've all been really high standard. Kate mm -hmm. Ormond's is just beautiful, beautifully written, really good good story again. The little extra bits from Declan about Khan and and stuff like that were were spot on. JR's was all right, and a couple of uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, but they are they, they are all really really good. Um, who was the other one? Oh, uh, no, I don't want to give anything away. To be honest, I'm not going to give no. anything away at all. You want people to get their own copy and enjoy. Yeah, I'm genuinely then. excited, and I'm I'm hooked. I'm bloody hooked on the thing, and I just you know I was almost thinking about not coming around here tonight, so I was reading the book. <laughs> 
biggest, the, biggest com- <laughs> the biggest compliment I heard was somebody said that they'd read it cover to cover. Right. And then they immediately wanted they wanted to pick it up straight away again and read it again. Oh. Which right. is one it's a huge compliment. Huge. So um you know, it's it's well, well Well, fingers crossed then we get Declan for half an hour next week to talk to us about it a bit more. Yeah, yeah. Right, speaking of which, we do have a subject tonight, although we seem to be struggling to get around to it, but I think it's about time we did, don't you? Let's yeah, get on, I eh? thought it was a magazine show all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, almost Not was. the sort of magazine that Sherak Jizz uh, likes. <laughs> you, can't even, you can't even say his name right. No, no, it makes me go all funny. Yeah, I bet it does. Right, this is the se- <laughs> this is ostensibly the second of our three uh, podcasts, doing the rundown of the eras of Doctor Who as voted for by our listeners. There were twelve eras that Doctor Who falls into, basically, according to producers and script editors and whatnot. And I just thought, given that it was the tenth anniversary of Doctor Who's return. Not the 10th anniversary of New Who, but the 10th anniversary of Doctor Who's return. And I think that is a massively important anniversary, whether it gets celebrated officially or not. I just think that's incredibly important. So I wanted to Mm. devote a number of episodes this year to celebrating that. And one of them is this, the run-up of the eras, to find out kind of which are the bits that our listeners like the most. And not the sort of... You know, the ones that come in last aren't the ones that are hated the most, but they're the ones that are liked slightly less than the other ones. That's what we said, isn't it? (laughs) We were trying to be diplomatic, weren't we? Right. We did the bottom four two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whatever it is now. And today we are doing the four that ended up in the middle. So we're doing positions eight, seven, six and five. And the era that came up in position eight was the Christopher H. Bidmead John Nathan Turner, which I did as running from the Leisure Hive up to Kinder, because even though officially Christopher Bidmead was off it from Legopolis, the next three stories, one's by him and the other two have certain of his hallmarks. So Mm -hmm. Christopher Bidmead and JNT, I don't suppose that's done massively well, but considering it's the 80s and considering the viewing figures for season 18 aren't too hot, that's not too shabby really, is it? No, it's coming higher than I had expected, I have to admit. Really? Why did you think it might have come in lower then? Because some people absolutely love season 18, don't they? Yeah, maybe it's one of those Marmite seasons. Uh, Certainly most of the people I I know who live through it weren't <laughs> as keen on it. <laughs> Is that lived for? Or it. maybe I'm just bringing my own bias. Well, you're talking about the people on this podcast, presumably, aren't you? Well, yeah, there is a bit of that. Well, the thing about the sort of Bidmead era is that, in well, in some ways, it kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater. In that, in order to, when Bidmead came on board. They said, let's take Doctor Who back to what it should be and make it a science fiction programme with a heavy emphasis on science again Mm. and ditched all the humour that had started to dog the sort of Graham Williams era. Yeah, it kind of went from one extreme to the other, didn't it? It did go from one extreme. Well, that's it. It went from one extreme to another extreme and possibly going to extremes is not the way to run Doctor Who. 
Because Doctor Who's supposed to be for everybody, so it mm-hmm. should be somewhere in the middle. Yeah. But the funny thing about the sort of Christopher Bidmead year, I've always thought, is that it goes ostensibly very heavy towards science mm-hmm. and very heavy towards getting rid of the humour. But then there's this weird middle ground in season 18 where they've got, like, magic fairy castles. Yeah. <laughs> there's some good stuff in there. I mean, even in the seasons that I'm not as fond of, there are still good stories in there. Oh, there always are. There always are. I but, find it visually one of the most interesting eras. Yeah. The costumes are nice. Yeah, there's <laughs> a lot of burgundy. There's a lot of, um, I think we said it before, there's a lot of beige and there's a lot of burgundy. Well, the beige comes later, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Yellowy beige, isn't it, up to that point? I was talking to um, somebody about this uh, the other week, an old friend, actually, and um, we were talking about this era and how we felt when it came on because we're roughly the same age, born in 71. So it would have been, what, I don't know, 11, 12, something like that? Um, 10. And he, 10, yeah, 10, of course. 9, so he, even? He was saying yeah. things like, um, he was saying things like, oh, I just found it really exciting that it was a brand new era of Doctor Who. It felt like something new and different, you know, the... The theme was different. Everything about it was kind of kicking off. The The effects looked a bit more cool and, and things like that. Um, and I was thinking, yeah, I kind of get what you mean there. But uh, I don't know, you know, it, it, I've got very, very lovely nostalgic feelings about things like Megloss and Legopolis and everything. Mm-hmm. But as an era, I don't know, it's a little bit, like you say, it's a bit too extreme taking out all the humour of, of Tom Baker and stuff like that was not... Um, I don't think it was a great idea, to be honest. If they'd have just let Tom carry on with the science the way he was doing, maybe that would have been a, a much stronger couple of years. Yeah, you're probably right. Um, I, think, I think the direction in something like Warrior's Gate was quite an eye-opener compared to what we'd seen before. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was something quite different and exciting. Um, well, cer- and, certainly yeah. the black and white sequences towards the end. Oh, yeah. That's, that's mm. weird. That was a bit freaky to see something like yeah. that in Doctor Who. Yeah. Where it had previously been monsters running down corridors in lurid Technicolor. Mm-hmm. Very, yes, it was... It, it, it's one of those... Season 18 is one of those years where it kind of has a thread throughout the whole thing which is this lacking humour and mm. going heavily towards the science that makes you want to feel that it ties up together as a sort of tonally neat whole. But it doesn't really, does it? It's up and down mm. all over the place, I think. It's the entropy thing, isn't it? Mm. Um, and it? And it seeps into every crack and corner of, of, of all of those stories. You get the entropy, you know, turning up in... Uh, well, in every story, actually, and even the Doctor himself's going through this kind of entropic stage. It does really. feel like the whole universe is covered in cobwebs, doesn't it? It's that <laughs> it bit. does a bit, yeah. yeah, yeah. Scientific cobwebs. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny, really. I mean, the whole the interesting thing about concentrating on these eras is when you do get into an era like this. I mean, for me, there's a huge nostalgic thing, mm. um, and it's very difficult to be objective. I've got a huge mm. amount of affection for this mm. era. Mm because of the age I was and how I took to it. I remember watching it in our spare room. We had a second television in mum and dad's room. And if somebody was watching something I didn't want to see in the other room, then I went off in the other room to watch Doctor Who for a bit. Um, 
so, so oh. it's, it's quite hard to be objective and um but as i say it, there's a lot in this that i like and uh, as lee's just said I, I agree in as much as that it did feel like a new start for it and it felt modern i loved the, i mean a lot of people don't like the titles i love the titles i love, I the, love the new version of the theme <laughs> Um, I did as well. I just, I just very much liked the new start of certain things. It felt I think like there some, it was. I think on. there were some quite interesting ideas coming through because they obviously wanted to shake it up a bit. Uh, I know we're going to be somewhat biased because he's been on the show a couple of times, but Full Circle is uh, one of those kind of memorable ones that really sticks out. Um, and I, th- it's just I think they they were. They were a bit quite one note, weren't they? In yeah, the, in. There were, there were quite yeah. a few stories in that season that started off with a really good first episode. And you mm-hmm. think, mm-hmm. and uh, the way I watched it, I kept thinking, oh, f- every first episode, I kept thinking, oh, finally, Doctor Who's back. And then by the time you got to the fourth episode in the story, I'm once again thinking, oh, where's Doctor Who gone? Because even, okay, you've just brought up Full Circle. Here's a great example. First episode of Full Circle feels like proper Doctor Who. Yeah. By the time you get to the end of Full Circle and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of disappeared up its own back end in some weird sciencey, wyancey explanation that you can't quite make head nor tail of. And it kind of feels like Doctor Who's disappeared again. And then the week after that, State of Decay starts and you're thinking, oh, here's Doctor Who again. And then that kind of sags really badly in the middle, whereas, you know, five years earlier, the middle of a story, middle of something like Genesis of the Daleks or the middle of something like The Deadly Assassin, it kicks on a gear. Here we are and State of Decay kind of starts really well and then kind of just puts itself on pause for a couple of episodes. What you're saying is they could have done the giant clam or something just to... Well, it just... (laughs) Yeah, but it just kind of kept feeling like every time... The Doctor Who of season 18 was finding its feet again. Something happened to kind of to kind of drag it back down to earth a bit. That's how it felt as a 12 year old. I think there's also a little bit of having seen the previous seasons because we're of that age. uh, It's probably not our Doctor Who anymore. Whereas you you'll have someone who for them, that's their first season. They started watching it and that is like their their pivotal season. So I think there's a lot of that that comes into it as well. And that's probably why certain people who were brought up on season 18 might struggle with certain other things later on. Mm-hmm. Because it does yeah. change quite... Ever since... You look at the first sort of 15 years or so of Doctor Who and essentially, although it's not you know absolutely the same all the way through, it kind of spends the first five years finding its feet and then for the next 10 years after that, it kind of just does what it does. And it's only here in 1980, when John Nathan Turner takes over, that it starts sort of, well, you know, there's that expression, pop will eat itself. It kind of, Doctor Who starts eating itself in season 18. It starts asking itself, what should I be? Prior to season 18, it was just happy to be what it was mm-hmm. from season 18 onwards. And this is everything from season 18 onwards. Cause once it starts doing this, you can't stop doing this. Everything from season 18 onwards is Doctor Who asking itself what it should be. Christopher Bidmead, Eric Sayward, Andrew Cartmel, Russell T Davis, Stephen Moffat, all of those 
writers, script editors, showrunners, whatever you want to call them, they're all going into Doctor Who with that question at the front of their minds, mm-hmm. what am I doing with Doctor Who, rather than just making Doctor Who. Oh, yeah, totally agree with you there, actually. Hey, and if, if there isn't a bigger sign, it's that those questions were there on his blinking collar. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's like a metaphor for the people making mm-hmm. the programme, asking the question, what should the programme be? Oh, that's JNT for you, isn't it? But, um, but of course, the... before you go on, sorry, Lee, yeah, just, to, on, okay. just to sort of finish that point, that's not necessarily a bad thing, of course. Because obviously some of what, uh, a great deal of what happens after that is great. And if you like season 18, that too is great. It just slightly affects, I think, the way you watch the programme. Because I think that even though it's an unwritten thing, I think there's an awareness between the programme makers and the people watching the programme that all of a sudden the programme is a thing, inverted commas, rather than just a programme. Mm. But the um, you know the question mark thing is quite an interesting one actually. Uh, bringing that up, it's it's one of those things where you if you thought about the I mean we know this is fiction, but if we thought about the character and where he had had been up until that point, like you say, it's just being Doctor Who. It's just being made. It just happens, and that's how it you know that, that's how it's made, um, and that's how we view it. It's just Doctor Who. It's happening. Suddenly, Doctor Who has got a question mark on his collar. So that makes it very self-aware, um, yeah. and and you just can't. I've I've always felt uncomfortable with that, uh, and also the pullover and the umbrella, everything to do with the question mark business. If you, if you look at the character, he just wouldn't do that. He wouldn't no. say, "Oh, who am I? Look at this." You know. Um, I have to say, looking back at it now, I find some of that stuff kind of cute. Yeah, no, that's fine. And actually, it worked for the time because don't forget, you know, nineteen eighties are completely different to what we're we're in now. And anybody who's under a certain age won't have a clue what the nineteen eighties was like and why the things happened like they did, like huge hair. Yeah, but, um, yeah. No, it's. And I think- I've got to say also very quickly, uh, this is the era where I recorded uh, the episodes on tape. So I've got Full Circle somewhere <laughs> at home, as well as Legopolis and a few others as well. And it was just one of those, it's one of those um, seasons that you could, that I first kind of revisited quite a lot uh, by the recordings. So I've got a fondness for it as well. Mark? I was going to say, that the point that Lee made about the, the question marks, um, the Doctor prior to that, I mean, I know Tom Baker had his kind of ridiculous scarf which was a bit silly, but you could kind of, he would pass as some kind of random um, person on the street. And he was very much that character who would come in, fix whatever the problem was, and then go off again. Whereas you couldn't really see him as a a sort of a, a slightly more um, secretive character when he's wandering around with massive great question marks everywhere and well, the, yeah it's part of that self-awareness prior mm. to this the doctor turns up and as a viewer we kind of know there's going to be a problem and we also kind of know the doctor's going to fix it mm. but it doesn't feel like he's there to fix it it's, it just feels like it's by accident that he turns up and by accident that he muddles through and by accident that he fixes it at the end but from the leisure hive onwards, he almost feels like the British gas man who's turned up because there's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and that's what I miss, I think. The sort of randomness, yeah. And the randomness of it, yeah. And it's difficult. Once you've gone past that, 
it's difficult to get it back. Mm. And I think that's one of the big things about this podcast in particular, or this subject that we've brought up. You know, I wrote a thing about this, and so it's something that I've thought about before, but there's this expression that comes from Happy Days. I don't know if you've any of you seen the episode. Jump, Jump in, the, in shark. the shark. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is because it comes from an episode where the Fonz... <laughs> Uh, is on a, a shark. Yeah. yeah, on his motorbike, isn't it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was water skis, wasn't it? It might. Yeah. Isn't it? it probably is water skis, but I don't know why. I yeah, think wouldn't it's... have had jet skis in the fifties. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the kind of pro- point is to, to jump the shark is yeah. the same as you know when a program starts eating itself, when it starts feeding off its own legend rather than creating yeah. the legend anymore. Yeah. But the point with Doctor Who is you bring a new showrunner in. And that's a reset button. You bring a new doctor in and that's a reset button. So even if an era, a particular era, has begun to eat the shark, to coin a new (laughs) phrase, (laughs) yeah, or, you know, jumped over itself, whatever, however you want to express it. Even if an era has done that and the next era we get to is a prime example of this being the case. You take away that doctor, you take away that writer, and you bring in a new doctor, and you bring in a new writer, and that allows you to go back to square one. You look yeah. at, you look at, well, this is going to be, uh, this is, this is going to be pertinent throughout the entire rest of this podcast, really, but you look at the way Russell T. Davis's era ends with the end of time, and then you yeah. look at the 11th hour. That's a complete, mm. in all but name, yeah. that is a complete page one reboot yeah. of the you know, idea. Actually, what's been in the back of my mind all the time we've been talking about this is the fact that K9, they didn't know what to do with him at the start. Now, they mm. could have just written him out. And instead, they, they, they kind of clung on to him saying, what, what the hell are we going to do with this? So eventually, they, they gradually phased him out. And, you know, well, and it's, like you say, it should have just been a, a brick wall where they said, yeah, no more K9. Well, JNT wanted to get rid of K9, but he let the newspapers know that, and there was yeah. such a fuss about it. So what he did in the end was he announced that K9 was going to get his own spin-off series, which allowed him to get rid of K9 from the TV series, and then the spin-off series, which apparently wasn't very successful, even though it had more viewers than any episode of the entire season, season 18 that had preceded it, apparently wasn't successful enough for K9 to go to a series. So JNT kind of got rid of K9 by the back door. Mm. <laughs> Great theme bit... tune, though. Ba, 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 ba. Ba, 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 ba. It's kind of prophetic in a way, isn't it? <laughs> kind of. I think of. It's, he's, he's kind of he invented his own kind of the show's demise in some respects, didn't he? Because he's kind of done the same things they tried to do with Doctor Who. You know, stuck it on different channels. And where it would silently just and stick it, stuck it in places where it just it, it would falter. Yeah, in a way, can't argue with you really. Is no. yeah, it's almost yeah, almost like a metaphor for what would happen with the series itself. Is what you're saying, mm-hmm. basically. Yeah, another another point, just briefly, we're going back to the costume. Is that they dressed the Doctor like a superhero? His mm. face it, it, it came a uniform you, rather than just clothes. Yeah, 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 it came a costume, didn't it, as opposed to a wardrobe. For the Doctor. And the companions as well, of course. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's something we should cover somewhere else. Because I think we should move on to the next one. Because the next one ties in very heavily with this. Because in seventh place, it's Graham Williams. No! Yeah. 
Why is that no? No, <laughs> no he's number one. You think he should be higher? Well, definitely number one or number two, I'd say. What, Graham Williams? Yeah. What, things like Underworld and Maybe The not Creature so much from Underworld. the Pit? Yeah. Well, this is the point. I, If you look at what Graham Williams did, mm. and I'll come back to some of my points from just now in a minute because I think it's worth addressing some of the things that we've already mentioned. But if you're going to look at it, the highs in the Graham Williams era, well, what are the three best stories under Graham Williams? Horror Fang Rock. Go on. Sharder. <laughs> okay, without the you humor. Key to time a whole story or No, 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 no. What are the three best stories in the Graham Williams era? Well, that's it's a personal thing, isn't it? I might come up with three and you'll say, "Oh no, it's these three. Well, um, no, I don't think it is a personal thing. And image I think, of Fendal. I think well, Image of the Fendal, yeah. Well, this is the point I'm making. You, <laughs> if I was to say to you, what are the three best stories in the Russell T. Davis era? You'd probably say The Empty Child, Blink. You know, off, mm-hmm. there would be stories that you wouldn't even hesitate to name. And any other era, there are stories that you don't hesitate to name. Horror of Fang Rock, you've just said, is one of the top three stories in the Graham Williams era. Mm-hmm. And I can't argue with you there, but Horror of Fang Rock as pleasant an experience as watching it might be it's not one of the series shibboleths city of death city of death absolutely that is the one that is the that is the one pinnacle of the graham williams era i'm not saying there aren't great stories in the graham williams era but it is an era that and partly because of what i've just said and Mm. maybe this is the reason why the change had to happen but all of a sudden after sort of, what is it, 14 seasons of Doctor Who just being Doctor Who, but developing and evolving and improving throughout those entire 14 years. When you get to the Graham Williams era, and this uh, inflation and such like notwithstanding, Mm. maybe it treads water for three years. I was about to use that phrase. That's absolutely perfect. It, It... I remember there was a music review for an album once, and it was for a band. It was one of the band's middle albums. And they used the phrase, they said, this isn't a bad album by any means. In fact, it's brilliant. In fact, it's as good as what they've done before. And they used the phrase, there's nothing so beautiful as the sound of treading water sometimes. Mm. You know, it, it was doing what it was good at, and it was it was just keeping a constant. Just I don't know if it was what... keeping it constant. I think it did fail a bit. I think it did fall down in lots of places i mean we know the production behind the Uh, the production side of it and tom baker and graham williams couldn't handle tom baker uh, and all the rest of the stuff that was going on with the scripts and the the, you know the the strikes and all that he had a lot to contend with um and you can see it you can see it in the outcome i mean see death is just an unusual uh, kind of peak it's just an unusual spike i think it but is the, very the rest much of it, like, so. like you say naimon and, and underworld as much as you might love the stories and the, and the fun elements of it as far as the kind There's of like the, very definitely cracks showing through there are cracks showing and of you know when we go into that bid mead era where they really wanted just to kick it out the park and, and do something brand new which i think was a brave move I don't think they necessarily did the same thing either. It's, that was treading water, really, season 18. But, um, no, I think it was failing in, in places, for sure. No, I disagree about season 18. I think, you know, if you look at it objectively, I think the Graham Williams era, 
as a show it was treading water and the cracks were starting to show through and i think season 18 does give it a kick up the ass doesn't give it <coughs> excuse me doesn't give it quite as much of a kick up the ass as maybe if we'd have gone straight into season 19 mm-hmm. but it does give it a a shot in the arm for it sure new, it does give it a water, water wings doesn't it <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't but it doesn't quite breathe new life into it, but it demonstrates that the program makers, perhaps, and perhaps subconsciously as well, were aware that those cracks were there. JNT knew there were cracks there. He wanted to get rid of the humour. Perhaps he didn't realise what the cracks were, because I think perhaps that's the wrong tack to take, and perhaps those weren't the cracks that were showing through. Yeah, the humour had become a problem, but the humour hadn't become a problem because it was humour. The humour became a problem because of the humour that was in it, because of the level of humour. You don't get rid of the entire thing just because that sort of variety of that thing that you have at this particular time is becoming problematic. It's like uh, if you say Doctor Who's gone too far into science fiction, you don't get rid of the science fiction altogether. If you think Doctor Who's gone too far into having time travel in the stories, you don't get rid of the time travel altogether. You don't get rid of the humour altogether. You just tone it down or find a new way of doing it that suits your sensibilities. Graham Williams era, it has a sort of half-decent season that starts it off, a slightly stronger second season, and then a most definitely weaker third season, in spite of that huge spike with City of Death. But the thing about it all is, with very few exceptions, all of those stories are very entertaining, in spite of how bad some of them are. Mm. That's exactly my point. Well, yeah. But that's <laughs> not the point we're here but to said discuss. said far better than I could ever put it. But... Okay, fair enough. So, um, well, I, I was saying that... Well, I was trying to say right back at the start of talking about Graham Williams, can we name three stories that are the absolute peaks? But the thing is, one of the stories you say is Image of the Fendal. Mm-hmm. But he, here's a question. Is Image of the Fendal anything like as good as Pyramids of Mars? No. I mean, there's... there's I would a, put it up there. I really you would. would. Yeah. I don't know. I think... Uh, I don't know. It's lacking something. There's a little spark in it. I do really like it. I absolutely love it. But there is something missing slightly from it. And I can't quite put my finger on that, actually. What is it? Really? I have no idea. Simon, you were about to say something. I was about to say the alien that doubles as air conditioning, I think, is, uh, <laughs> is a plus point. It, if, it's, if it's lost anything, it is lost... A point. The, no, the drive of Philip Hinchcliffe. Philip Hinchcliffe had a drive to make everything that he produced sing with professionality. Professionalism rather professionality <laughs> i'm making words up worse than you do Lee. <laughs> he uh, philip hinchcliffe was a young producer who had a point to prove graham williams was also a relatively young producer but graham williams doesn't seem to have had that drive to prove a point and so although graham will graham williams is beset by many problems but the one thing about graham williams that you don't get is a sense that He's doing anything more than overcoming the problems. 
If Philip Hinchcliffe had been in there with those same problems, you can bet his solutions would have been entirely different ones because Philip Hinchcliffe would have just kept kicking asses until he got what he wanted. But with Graham Williams, it's not so much a case of he's kicking asses as he's just trying to avoid getting his own ass kicked. Yeah. Which is not a criticism. They're just different people. But Mm. Graham Williams... I mean, Graham Williams seems to have been a really nice bloke. And I think he's underrated as a producer because I think that given the problems that he had to face, I think he did some amazing things. But by the same token, I cannot put my hand on my heart and say that he is one of the sort of genius talents who has driven Doctor Who to bigger and better things. Because like I say, those three years... In spite of the fact that I love those three years and some of my favourite stories are in those three years, I cannot put my hand on my heart and say that I think those three years are a peak of Doctor Who by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. The Fendal isn't as strong, you know, just comparing it to Pyramids, say, it isn't as strong a creation as Sutek. You know, Sutek has, has got... There's a lot there. You've got a bit of history going on there. Is you know the setting's good. It's quite iconic. You've got mummies and stuff like that. Mm. I mean, it's, the, it's if you really break it down, it's just one of the stupidest toys ever written. It's really silly, but it, it's also brilliant at the same time. And you, you're you're stuck trying to work out what's going to happen next with the Sutek um, plotline and 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 the, you know the future of the Earth possibly crumbling away if if the Doctor doesn't stop it. It's really quite compelling. Whereas Image of Fendal. Is you know what is it? It's it's a bit of a kind of a Quatermass ripoff, really. But it's it's I still love it. But I just think it's a little bit empty compared. And you're right. I think Graham Williams didn't have that kind of backbone like Philip had um, to really give it that kick up the arse. And on that note, and we are exactly halfway through the rundown now because that is the bottom six eras done, and now we're moving into the top six eras. Here's somebody with backbone, and here's somebody with drive, and here's somebody who pushed Doctor Who on. In sixth place, it's Russell T. Davis. Wow. Wow. Sixth. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, when you look at what the five above him are... Okay. Uh, I mean, we're into... This is a mark, actually, of how wide a sort of area of Doctor Who is well-loved. Because mm. I would say Russell T. Davis is pretty much well loved even by the people who don't particularly like what he did but i think he's well loved because of what he did sort of behind the scenes Mm -hmm. bringing the program back and giving it such a strong identity Mm -hmm. that even if you didn't necessarily like the way he went about things it was still compelling Mm -hmm. russell t davis is one of the most important people isn't he to ever have been involved with with Doctor Who really I mean to try and Mm. bring back that idea and make it work it's one of those impossible dreams that you just you know when when you first told me JR all those years ago I literally didn't believe you until the actual thing was made Um, and when we saw it on the screen I was it wasn't just us that was compelled to watch it and we weren't just Mm. hooked on it because we were fans the entire nation was Mm. so that's such a hard and almost an impossible thing to do to bring back what was considered a a, an old boneyard of a bloody series that everybody was laughing at for years and laughing at the people who liked it like us and then all of a sudden we're a little bit cool (laughs) you know oh, it's fan of Doctor Who yeah it's quite cool just for about three seconds um and, you know, to do that, to kind of change and sway everybody's attitudes to the series that was, was, that was killed by Michael Grade uh, or whoever killed it, um, it's just, 
it's just an amazing thing. So yeah, I mean, I said kind of, oh, maybe you should be higher. I mean, you're right. The stuff above, I imagine already what those are, and story-wise, they're going to be fantastic, and they deserve to be there. But you know, you look at Russell T. Davis, very, very, very significant, um, you know, thing that he did, and maybe just stayed on that one year too long. Maybe that's what people have got mm. a problem with. End of time, the specials, that sort of thing. If he hadn't done the specials. Maybe, just maybe. I think maybe he stayed on a couple of years too long, but I think the casting of Catherine Tate as the companion offsets the problems that the programme was having. I was just going to say, actually, the Russell T. Davis era is almost a sort of metaphor for the entire classic series. Because if you look at Russell T. Davis' first series with Christopher Eccleston, slightly like the black and white years, that's the programme finding its feet. Mm. And then the second series, the first with David Tennant, Slightly like the 1970s or the early 1970s. Mm. That's a programme being strong and doing what it does. Series 3, there are peaks there, but the troughs are starting to become particularly noticeable. Mm. Much like maybe in the Graham Williams era, where it's treading water. And then when you get to Series 4, you've got things like casting Catherine Tate, which is a pretty sort of out of left field move to distract attention away from the fact that you've got no stories left to tell which is kind of how the 80s felt and then that season of specials that's a bit like the last four or five years of the 80s when there were some great things and there were some terrible things and the whole thing was just starting to feel like it was crumbling Mm, maybe so Russell T Davis told the entire story of Doctor Who in five years (laughs) But he kind of, in a way, did. I think it takes a lot of talent to be able to, if you think back to when he had to bring the show back, obviously he's a absolute pay, fully paid-up fanboy. It's quite an achievement to bring the show back and be able to please all of the people who loved I... Doctor Who originally, but also make it a populist programme that your average person would sit down and watch on a Saturday night. And also within the industry as well. He proved that um, you know the, the BBC can still love the programme they killed. Um, and after winning the, the awards, and it, let's face it, year after year after year after year, Doctor Who kept winning awards every single year. Um, I think the last year was probably the first time the Doctor didn't get uh, an award or something I can't remember now but um, basically you know for nearly 10 years this program has been winning awards through and through and it's a global phenomenon um, and that was you know that was due to one guy's kind of vision I think he was at a party wasn't it and he kind of mentioned it to is it Jane Tranter is that right yeah yeah uh, and that's he'd already been asked off. I think but he was I think he was trying mm. to keep it under wraps that he was a big fan um, it was either that or, no I can't remember now I can't remember the story, but it's just in a, a lovely little story once you get to read it uh, about how it all started. And then off it goes, like nowhere. And it's... all that time he wasn't sure, you know, he must have been petrified. He wasn't entirely sure whether it was going to work. But he was telling everybody in Doctor Who magazine, online, everything, you know, oh, it's going to be great. Oh, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be, you'll love it. It's going to be fantastic. He was pumping everybody full of positive energy. And that's exactly what you need as a, as a showrunner. I the way I see it is that he was juggling an awful lot of balls. He was <laughs> Russell T Lee? Davis yeah, juggling why you, balls. Why, why are you laughing, Lee? Why? Tell me, what, Lee? Why are you laughing? 
What? Why are you laughing? I don't know. He was juggling an awful lot of balls. <laughs> and... Get to your point, Simon. Um, my point is that completely different to the previous series in as much as... Well, I mean, I suppose in, in the early days there were elements of it, but you had this soap opera element to, me, to it. And you could you could have argued, if it hadn't worked, I think the one thing that you would argue against the series is that it was trying to be all things to all people. And actually, it was a really fine-tuned um, construction whereby it could behave as the old series, but also with these added elements that drew in a different type of audience um, from from the, the few, last few series before the thing died. So I, I just think it was a really... Yeah, maybe it should be higher because it was something completely. It was literally like starting a new series again. Really, it was. Oh, completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it it wasn't just rebooting it. It was absolutely taking it back to its basic elements and saying, "We need to create a new series for this time," because the the, the viewers are that much more discerning now, and they are that much more au fait with what they want when they want to watch it. And they will far more easily turn off because they have far more choice. So it, it, it literally had to be all things to all people. Um, and that could so easily have been a car crash. It and could bring, have just been a complete mess. And it wasn't. And bringing the mystery back as well was so important. You know, uh, We were all thinking, how is he going to do it? And I remember on a, um, uh, on a webpage somewhere in the, in the you know depths of time, uh, Russell T. Davis was almost talking to the fans at that point kind of going you know what kind of thing would you like in the series i'm sure he was doing this because i remember writing back and saying you know one man in a box in, a, in the police box uh that's all we need you know you can scrap everything else you can scrap gallifrey for like okay? just bring him back in his in his box and make it a mystery again oh is this a bit um, where lee takes credit for wow, the whole time yeah, yeah, story yeah I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna take credit for this bit but um <laughs> no no it's just that i wrote it and i just thought uh, that's what happened but it was also what a lot of other people were saying it wasn't just me um and i was thinking yeah that's that's great but what he did do of course he kept the he kept gallifrey and added this brilliant time war concept um which we didn't know anything about and as it was uncovering you know i was going for it that the emotion of the doctor crying uh next to tree lady that was that was incredible i, I felt myself tearing up and thinking what the hell this is doctor who why am i getting emotional here and it was just so well done and the time all felt so incredible in its in its hugeness that we'll you know we never thought we were ever going to see it either well he did he did taxi driver he has he has a hero who's (laughs) broken by a war that we never see yeah Mm. exactly Mm. but obviously i think it was a very brave thing to take it on Mm. i mean in one respect it was an absolute dead cert winner because of the the formula is is perfect but at that point in his career he was getting a real name for himself with all the other stuff that he'd done previous to that Mm. and if it had gone horribly pear-shaped that could well have been the end of his career so i think it's a very brave move it's one of those things though as a fan if you've got the clout to do it and do it in a way where you you stand the best chance that anybody's ever going to stand of making it a success. And he does. And we have Russell T. Davis to thank for the fact that I don't think Russell, the, the Doctor Who will ever die now. Mm. I don't I think, think he's... It, mm, we've said that so many earlier, times. Yeah. 
I think you said earlier, you know, regardless of whether you're a fan of his stories or not, you've got to give him kudos for, for bringing it back and making it what it is today. Right. So the last era we'll be looking at today, the one that came fifth overall, and this is probably the oddest one. This is Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant. <laughs> because okay. at the end of the 60s and at the start of the 70s, there was a period where... Well, if you look in the reference books, it looks like the production team are changing on an almost episode-by-episode -episode basis. Yeah. <laughs> but what happens is the same people are there. It's just that their job titles change on various stories according to the specifics of whatever there is, whatever it is that they're up to that particular week. But basically, Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant, not exactly the best of friends, as we've <laughs> since discovered, but... From a period that runs roughly from the enemy of the world to, and I have this down as Inferno, because uh, it was Sherwin who um, basically set up Season 7. And Barry Letts might be named as producer for most of Season 7, but he's essentially just, you know... Well, there is a lot of that going on, isn't there? Because I'm sure I heard Terence Dix talking to someone, it might have been on a podcast, and he was saying that he was originally hired to do some kind of script writing duty. I can't remember if it was actually the script editor. And then they had some kind of issue where they had to stall that happening because something hadn't paid off along the line where the current script editor was hoping to become a producer. So they had to stick to that and he ended up being in a, an associate editor or something like that. And it's, there's a lot of politics going on. There is. But essentially, what I was coming to is, from the Enemy of the World to Inferno, you've basically got an era of Doctor Who that, in spite of the fact that it starts off with a few base under siege stories, like The Web of Fear and Fury from the Deep, that starts to feel like it's reflecting things like spy movies mm -hmm. and such like that were popular at the end of the 60s, mm -hmm. rather than everything that had... Up until the point where you get to the enemy of the world, and from Terror of the Autons onwards, Doctor Who is kind of, you know, sci-fi. But from the enemy of the world, and if you, now that Web of Fear has sort of been rediscovered, and we can see just exactly what Douglas Camfield did with a hokey-as-hell script from the guys who wrote The Dominators, we can see that this era kind of feels all of a piece from enemy of the world to inferno in that doctor who is reflecting something else entirely early in the 60s war movies were really popular and they managed to stay fairly popular roughly till the end of the 70s and things like a bridge too far mm -hmm. but then by the time you get to things like hanover street which just two years after a bridge too far they're already well on their way out but what comes in in the 60s instead because Art reflects life, but there's always a gap in between. And the 60s, suddenly the sort of influence of the Cold War comes through. And I think what you're getting here is Doctor Who reflecting what's happening in the rest of the arts in the sort of middle of the 1960s. And by the time you've got things like the Ipcris file, I think the Ipcris file is a much bigger, bigger influence on the Doctor Who of Sherwin and Bryant than you know, say, uh, Dam Busters or something like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas Dam Busters certainly has the feel. Not necessarily, you know, none of the story themes or none of the story 
But the tone of Dambusters is kind of the tone of Doctor Who. Something needs doing. There's a really bad enemy somewhere. And it's a story of overcoming the odds to defeat that enemy. Whereas from the enemy the world through to Inferno, it's not so much about overcoming the odds to defeat the enemy, but the enemy's no longer a black and white creation, and it's all shades of grey. Mm. It's it's kind of Doctor Who colliding with a more grown-up sort of program making, where the monsters become less important. Well, Look particularly at where... in season seven, I think that's yeah much less aimed at the children and much more at an older audience. But I think it's there in The Enemy of the World and The Web mm-hmm. of Fear, Fury from the Deep, The Wheel in Space, and through a lot of Season 6. Season 6 is kind of a bit of an odd one out here because Season 6 is really... Patrick Troughton's coming to an end. He doesn't that much care about the programme anymore and the people writing for it. And I'm not talking about the sort of back office staff, like the story mm-hmm. editor, but I'm talking about getting writers to come in and write for it is becoming increasingly difficult. And so season six is kind of thrown together with whatever scripts they can get. But even in season six, you've got Derek Sherwin's own script for the invasion, Mm -hmm. which is the absolute template for season seven. And the invasion is born out of the bastard child of the enemy of the world in the web of fear anyway. It's like an exact halfway point between those two stories. So this kind of all, this whole period feels to me of a piece. And I think the reason why it's done fairly well in our poll, not brilliantly well, it's not ended up in the top four, but fairly well, is because a lot of Doctor Who fans, when they grow up, like to think of the more grown up bits of Doctor Who as being more appropriate in some way. Mm-hmm. There's also the war games in the smack in the middle of it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to have a look. I mean, if you're taking it up to Inferno, um, you know, I, 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 sorry, Mark, but I really love, the, <laughs> I love those. Um, uh, you know, Inferno is one of my favourites, and that, Spearhead that from first Space. season of Pertwee is by far, in my opinion, my favourite. Yeah, exactly. It's just a, such a strong season, mm. and you, like like Jr. says, that's exactly what I was thinking. That it is, you know, you see invasion, you see um, uh, the enemy of the world, stuff like that, and. Then you see the kind of earthbound stories, action-based, you know, lots of fighting, lots of you know, war, uh, not war, you know, army and, and guns and running around mm-hmm. in Land Rovers and whatever. It's 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 great. I, I kind of like that. It really, really worked. And it was something different. They were trying something a little bit different out. The War Games is an odd, a bit of an oddity because it doesn't have that kind of element to it. But it's a, I think it was thrown together so quickly. But you, you know, I don't know. I, I love the stories in that season. Apart, I think, apart from Space Pirates. <laughs> but they're all just... about, none of those stories are about the monster being the enemy that needs to be overcome in the same way as, say, Dalek stories would be. Dalek stories would be about overcoming the Daleks. Cybermen stories would be about overcoming the Cybermen. But the web of fear is not about overcoming the Yeti. It's about overcoming this ambiguous sort of presence behind the yeti and if you look at the war games that's not about overcoming a monster it's about these people who are running this project and this kind of a a sort of morally ambiguous gray area about the project i mean the way they're doing it obviously is wrong and that's why it needs stopping but you kind of they're not completely black and white in their motives you look no, at the mind robber you look yeah. at what's behind the mind robber is a guy telling stories mm. and invasion of course you've got tobias fawn 
uh, which is, you know, he's a, an exceptional villain, very Bond kind of esque. And also uh, a Quisling, which yeah. is. Yeah. 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 I, th- I think it's quite a subtle little sign, but those little pieces of film that they used, they put at the start, particularly on Inferno, I mean, I know it was the last one, but they also did all the war games, those little s- snippets just after the credits gave each story its own identity as well. Yeah. So it's almost like you can imagine if they they could put these together and they could be put out a few months apart, much like Quatermass. So you've got Quatermass 1, Quatermass 2. They've got their own individual identity. Mm. And I kind of feel that they were, in some respects, doing that. Um, and, And particularly Inferno has the feeling of no other Doctor Who story. When you're watching it, I, it kind of feels almost like it's a special, in a weird way. Um, in, in as much as it just seems to have, it, it's it, very high concept. Yeah, well, yeah, all yeah. four of them do actually in that um, season. Ambassadors as well, Spearhead from Space. They they all do feel Those, very very different. To going back to what Simon just said about the music at the start, that's almost like the Bond titles. In that, you've got the Doctor Who bit like you've got the Bond bit and you know what you're getting there, but also within what you know what you're getting, there's something new which isn't quite something you can expect. Mm, mm. It's got that kind of feel to it. I don't know why I'm drawing the Bond analogy so strongly because I don't think especially it's influenced by Bond, but I think it's that morally grey area that it's kind of shifted into. Mm. I think Pertwee quite often gets compared to Bond, doesn't he, in his action hero status mm. he does yeah but we're mostly talking about Troughton here we're only talking four poetry mm. stories out of about a dozen yeah, or more true, stories suppose, here yeah. yeah you know only about a third of it is poetry but it's already moving in that direction mm. and obviously from terror of the autons onwards john poetry goes somewhere else or the john poetry era goes somewhere else Entirely, anyway. Once Barry Letts and Terence Dix, Terence Dix is actually yeah. the most consistent presence throughout this period, because I think he worked on almost all of these stories—not quite all of them, but almost all of them, mm-hmm. I think. <clears throat> but that's a very, but but uh, given how strong, because there are some real peaks. We're talking Web of Fear. We're talking War Games. We're talking Inferno. We're talking. Spearhead from space. Talking about Silurians, we haven't mentioned yet. Yeah, there's some real peaks here. Why has this period not come in the top four then? No idea. <laughs> Why hasn't it? Well, perhaps because it, it does have that sort of ambiguity about it. I think there's a. I think a lot of people like their Doctor Who to be black and white in a certain mm. way. A lot of people like it to be. You know, people like Doctor Who to be grown up, but they also like it to be easy to read. They don't like oh, it when it's Trixie. I wonder, Trixie, I wonder whether it would have been lower in the ratings uh, if we hadn't have had Web of Fear and Enemy of the World, because we, we, you know, the Web of Fear was something that we were all going, yeah, it's going to be great, it's going to be great. And when we fa- finally got to watch it, it was great, actually. actually Whereas Enemy of the World was like, <clears throat> well, you know, it's one of those, it didn't really come across an audio that exciting, it wasn't that exciting, to be honest. And the one episode we'd had was with a cook, you know, a chef, an Australian chef. But, um, you know, when we finally got to see it, it was, it's a corker. It's a really good you know, I think it would have been higher if I hadn't have included the Patrick Troughton stories there and just had season seven. Yeah. 
Everybody loves season seven. Good. Everybody loves those Even I ponderous like seven-part stories. Those interminable <laughs> weeks with no monsters. Loved it. Mm. Right, I think we should call it a night then. Because we've talked for long enough, I think. Mm. I think, uh, well, in the fortnight, uh, all being well and not taking any uh, extraneous trips to Bristol in the meantime, as insofar as I'm aware, in a fortnight we'll get to the top four eras. And I, if people have listened to these last two podcasts, they're probably thinking to themselves now, okay, they've not done such and such, and they've not done such and such. Have they done such and such? Oh, no, and they've not got to such and such. People are trying to guess what the top four are, aren't they? Yeah, you'll have to go back and listen to the other podcasts. <laughs> Does Dimensions in Time count as an era? No, it does not, Mark, but thanks no. for that. If you add an S, it's, it spells arse. <laughs> <laughs> right. And on that bombshell. Well, next week, uh, Lee and Simon and I, I think it's just the three of us, are convening to do another sidebar episode, aren't we, guys? Mm. Mm. And we are sidebarring on the topic of, uh, well, we're, we're choosing our favourite sci-fi films that haven't come under the criteria that we've already had. Which is difficult, because obviously all the ones we've talked about are mm. pretty much my favourite ones already, so it's an interesting one. I think I was working on the fact that it's the, the films that I keep going back to, and I don't. sometimes I don't even know why, but I just I feel com- compelled to keep watching them over and over again. So, um, yeah, that, those would be my choices. Yeah, OK, we'll find out next week. The reasons we? why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Let's just do it now. Do you know what? I was about to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, in that case, until then, I was JR. I was Lee. I was Mark. And I am Simon. <laughs> and we will speak again soon. <laughs>